You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here, welcome to another Flip My Funnel episode. And this podcast has been just growing like crazy. And one of the reasons it's growing is because we have people that are doing Tuesday and Thursday takeovers. So today, I'm really excited to introduce Barb uh, Mosher Zink. She is running her own podcast called Content Matters. And it's a really, really good podcast. And she's interviewing some ridiculously good people in content. So if you're in content, you got to listen to this whole series. So Barb, welcome to the Flip Mountain Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. All right, Barb, share a little bit about your podcast and the type of people you're interviewing in this series. So the Content Matters Podcast is a podcast that looks at all aspects of content, from especially from the marketing side, but also from like technical documentation, like how, all of, how it works to support every kind of group across the company. And I have been really, really fortunate to interview some really great, smart experts. Um, Scott Abel, Anne Hanley, Matthew Sweezy, um, Ian True Scott, um, Jim Edmonds, uh, Kem Mayfield, or Mathley, sorry, I said his name wrong. But um, yeah, there's just, there were so many. I've, we've been going for two years now and it's just, it's just been phenomenal. Fantastic, Barb. I cannot wait to hear this episode. So let's just dive right into it. everyone. Welcome to season two of the Content Matters podcast. I'm looking forward to talking to some really great people this season about all aspects of digital experience strategy. We're going to be talking to experts on topics like SEO, customer data platforms, customer experience strategies, which yeah, I guess covers just about everything under the sun, including content strategy and much more. We're even working on a few roundtable episodes, so stay tuned. But our first episode, which is today, I had the privilege of chatting with Scott Abel. Now, most of you are going to know Scott as the content wrangler. He works with companies on content strategy, and he speaks and talks and writes all about it. And it's the way to help people improve the way they author, maintain, and deliver information. Scott's also the co-author of the Intelligent Content Management book, A Primer. We talked about that book a little bit. Um, and the language of content strategy. And he's the creator of the content strategy series of books from XML Press. I'll make sure I put links to those books in the podcast summary in case you want to grab a copy. Scott and I talked about a lot of things related to content strategy, including the challenges the companies face and how they can try to overcome them, the key elements and roles involved in developing and managing your content strategy and your content operations. And we talked about the role of a unified content hub and the idea of hybrid content management, which is um, the big talk this year. So with that, here is our conversation. Can you define content strategy and its importance to the organization? And, and I say that, and I think that would be so easy to define. Maybe it's not, but go, go ahead and try. My answer is yes. <laughs> well, <I> there. <laughs> the challenge really isn't that. The challenge, and I'm, I'll do it for you because you asked me to, but the challenge is often as soon as you start to talk about that, People have preconceived notions of what a definition means. They also have preconditioned uh, 
responses that are tied to who they are and the roles that they play. So they often are, it, make it, it makes it hard for them to uh, separate the two. So I'll, I'll make an attempt to do that. In my book, content strategy is basically the analysis phase of some kind of business problem that you have. And your job as a strategist is to determine how content can be improved, either on the editorial side uh, by maybe tweaking its voice and tone or its uh, consistency, or on the technical side by structuring it so that it can meet that business goal that we talked about. So it's not a content problem, it's a business problem. But most content people are too tied to it So it becomes something affiliated with what they do at their job, which it couldn't be farther from that. It's that's not the problem. (laughs) Those are tactical level problems. They're not strategic. So strategy is the planning phase. And I guess if you were going to say it a different way, you'd say that content strategy is a practice and the practice's aim is to help an organization improve their content performance, what that content does for the organization. And those improvements are obtained primarily through some sort of analysis of the existing content systems that are in place, and then making a development plan for improving those things to meet the goals that the organization has for uh, its business. Sounds like a lot of work. It really is. And this is why um, humans are lazy. Um, I, I don't say that as some sort of proclamation. It's a scientific fact that we are wired to utilize the least amount of energy to perform the tasks that our brain deems as priority. Normally, the priority starts with survival, right? (laughs) And then goes down from there. And so I think humans by nature don't want to change. They like the patterns. I mean, think about it. If the iPhone would have came out, it would have been dramatic. You could do magical things like, you know, maybe even some things the device doesn't do today. But what if they decided that they didn't like the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero on the bottom dialing pattern? What if the designers would have decided, I want it to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine down, right? <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> and it would have worked. You could push all the buttons and it would totally make a phone call. But it, that change would be so significant, just that one little tweak, that it might have caused a failure of adoption for the entire product. And so I think a lot of times our content teams are scared of the changes that break their patterns. And as a result, they push back and it becomes, that's too hard to do, which is nice because you know what? The businesses that don't do stuff that's hard, when innovation, uh, a disruptive innovator comes, they're out of business. (laughs) So survival's not required, it's an option. Right. So you talk about it as a business strategy, which, um, so, and then when you look at it, there's content developed in all kinds of different departments within a company and marketing and sales, customer success, technical documentation and support. At what level do you need to set your content strategy and how do you, is it even possible to kind of unify all those different systems and strategies and approaches together into one? That's a tough question too, but I'll, I'll try to answer it this way. The holy grail is to have an experience that the uh, humans that you're interacting with at the other end uh, deem as authentic and relevant and, you know, all those things that make uh, people happy when you're communicating to them, that they feel valued and respected. And so enterprise content is the goal to have, you know, everything across your, every touch point uh, be unified so that the customer feels like they're respected and valued and treated the same you know, everywhere they go. It would be different if you were onboarded to, let's say, a um, experience with the brand and everything was delightful 
And then the minute that they transfer you over and make you convert you into a customer, you're left to fend for yourself. And the information is all different. It sounds different than the friendly marketing stuff that um, attracted you to the brand. And so I think the holy grail is enterprise content. Intellectually, content development professionals, especially in the technical communication field at first, um, solved a lot of these problems and they were able to map out what we call a unified content strategy, which is basically a systematic approach of um, how we're going to handle content. And it, it, it helps an organization reduce the cost of creating, managing, and distributing all the content by ensuring that the content is effectively supporting the organization's needs and the customer's needs. And the, the most famous person in our industry sector who has worked on this wrote about it in the late 1999 period and published a book in 20, uh, 2001 called Unified Content Strategy, uh, Managing, sorry, it was called Managing Enterprise Content, colon, a Unified Content Strategy, in which Anne Rockley and uh, her team of editors map out the process that's involved in creating a strategy that would branch across the different silos that you might have in an organization. They, they argue in this strategy that the, the intent is to identify all the content re requirements that you have up front and then create some kind of consistently structured method of repurposing that content and managing it in one place so that you can assemble it on demand and kind of control all of the costs and the rules and the workflow around the content so that you can truly claim that you're doing the same thing in order to serve the same customer from different places in, inside your organization that produce content. And, and of course, the benefits to that are uh, faster time to market, better use of resources, reduced cost, and improved quality of content uh, uh, along the lines of you know, maybe 20 or other uh, smaller improvements that can also be made. But your question was, is it possible? So the book was it was possible to write the book. I edited that book in 2000. It was published in 2001. And a second version was, uh, I printed up, uh, I'd say a decade later. So maybe 2011, we revised the book and put it out again. It was revised by the publisher because there's value in that topic. People seek it out. They buy the books. They research it. They, they intend on trying to solve their enterprise problem. What usually happens, though, is that that's not what happens. Um, an enterprise approach taken by a single person is seldom going to go anywhere because right. the, the champions aren't powerful enough to affect the change. And the patterns that are ingrained in all the people in all the different silos are difficult to break down. So the answer is usually your enterprise uh, content uh, challenge shrinks to become interdepartmental. So maybe there's a training department and a technical communication and a support team and the managers are savvy enough to get together and realize that some of their problems are overlapping. And if they were to make the argument together, they might be able to sell the value to upper management to get investment and in making improvements in the way that they manage and create their content so that they can deliver better experiences and show the value across three or four teams. If you can do that, then maybe you can convince somebody to scale up and kind of go across the enterprise. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a few companies trying to do it. Most of the companies that grow exponentially, these uh, mostly Silicon Valley oriented or uh, focused companies, 
that uh, use information to their advantage. In fact, some of them package up information and that's their product that they sell, the packaging of it, that they make it more convenient for you or more valuable. These companies know that information is at the center of everything they do. And so they're starting to force their companies to break down these old ways of managing things and move toward an enterprise unified uh, concept. But it is challenging. It's really difficult to do. It takes investment and commitment and resources and, and, and intellect. And of course, it takes um, labor in the form of human beings and our creativity and our brain power. And with the low unemployment rate in the United States, it's becoming increasingly challenging to find the kinds of talent and retain them that would be necessary to implement at an enterprise scale. I know that um, I know that marketing doesn't necessarily lead content strategy, but it seems like it's become more talked about and more predominant. They think people are starting to realize how much more important it is to have really have one and to try to aim for a unified one. Ever since marketing started, we started talking about marketing and you know more consistent customer experiences across the entire customer lifecycle. So. Like, is that what you have found? Like, I mean, 20 years, that's 20 years since um, Anne Rockley wrote that book. Like, and we're still not doing it as a regular cadence. We And companies still can't do it. They just aren't there. So who needs to lead it to kind of get us to that place where we need to go? It has to come from leadership. And it has to be part of a, a bigger movement. And there is a bigger movement afoot. There are companies that grow exponentially. They grow at 10 times faster the clip with 10 times fewer resource, less resources than companies that are traditionally organized. These are companies like Uber and Facebook and Spotify and Amazon. Facebook, you know, they're companies that are growing at such a record clip and they share some commonalities. Some of them are they rent instead of buy or build. Um, they uh, use the power of the crowd. It's a lot of these, you know, uh, 20th, 21st century um, IT and business disruption kind of vocabulary words that you hear bandied about. But there are companies that are doing this stuff and what they have in common is that they are all quote unquote information enabled, which means that they can harness the power of information and use it as a tool. That tool might be a weapon, it might be a conversion tool, right? It might be a marketing tool, advertising tool, or a compliance tool, um, but they're using their content to accomplish business goals and they're driving from information. It's not information as an extra nice to have that goes along with the product. Information is the product in these companies. And so I think what we're going to see is less important what marketing thinks, more important what the company leaders think. And they're, they're being converted, right? Leaders uh, don't attend the same webinars that everybody wishes they did. Like CEOs just don't sit around listening for marketing pitches all day. Right. Even though every marketer wants to reach them, <laughs> that's not how it works. And so these guys and gals go to places where leaders hang out. And what they're talking about is how can we avoid a innovative disruptor entering our market space and siphoning off the customers that aren't happy with us at first that we can't keep loyal and then how can we stop them from creating a new market segment that we should have owned right i like to think about blockbuster or eastman kodak they should have owned those new modern versions of themselves but they didn't have the foresight to make the changes quick enough and so marketing teams i think because they were led by some innovative thought leaders. For example, Joe Polizzi of the Content Marketing Institute was savvy enough to see when he ran across information from Ann Rockley and myself 
we, Anne Rockley and I, uh, took her idea of the unified content strategy and created a conference called the Intelligent Content Conference. Uh, Joe Polizzi at the Content Marketing Institute saw the big message there, which was we were trying to help companies deliver the right piece of content to the right person in the right time, at the right place, in the right language, in the right format, on the device of their choosing. And we wanted to be able to do that automatically right, and systematically so that we could repeat it over and over and maybe eventually apply machine technology to automate those things. And so I think Joe was savvy and knew that and then started preaching it. He came to us and said, hey, I'd like to buy your conference because marketers need to deliver the right piece to the right person at the right time in the right language in the right format, et cetera. And you guys are teaching people how to do it. Let's see if we could get them to do it. So they, you know, the Content Marketing Institute bought our conference and tried to do that for a few years, I think. And I, what I've seen from afar, I'm not involved in the organization anymore, is that they gave up on that and went for the low-hanging fruit, which is, content marketers buy software, let's have a content software conference, right? And so now it's right. really about buying software, which is not a transformation, by the way. I just tire of hearing this nonsense about digital transformation and software. It's nonsense. <laughs> if you are not transforming the way that you, if you're not, I'll just put it really clearly for your listeners. If you're not changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly, you are not transforming. You're upgrading your software <laughs> or right. spending money on subscriptions that could yield with other work some new capacity or capability for you, but you're unlikely to get it because you're not transforming. You're just maybe automating your crappy way of doing things a little faster, but you're not actually solving the problem that's at hand. Why do you think that um, marketers didn't get it? Like, Why do you think it didn't work for the Content Marketing Institute? Oh, I think it's the same for everyone. You could say that technical communicators who were originally the drivers of this innovation to create content in a single source and publish it to multiple outputs simultaneously, they were forced to do so because the industry that they started, sorry, the industry that started their job trajectory growing was software. And once a software product was, you know, invented in wherever, probably Silicon Valley, some people in California used it in the early days, right, of software, and then it spread. And then some CEO would meet with their uh, leaders and say, we should sell this stuff in Canada, right? <laughs> or, yeah. or Mexico or wherever. And as they started to expand, they realized this is getting harder and harder and harder as we add more markets. So we had to develop a way. There was no way. Like there was, there was simply no human way to keep up with the scale of the work. So marketers have often been paid for their creativity and their ability to handcraft these solutions. And so their value has always been attached to that. I'm asking them, and so are other uh, thought leaders that are trying to get them to do better with information, to let go of that and to have somebody, someone develop the creative and somebody creative, which would be the look and feel, the graphics, the photos and all that, and somebody else design the structure of the information and then bring the two together. So you're creating content separate of its formatting. That way you can apply formatting to the content based on the situation at hand. If you had a bunch of content uh, that was available and you had rules that you could automatically process it by, you could route that content to the right output channel and format it appropriately without human intervention. This, this to marketers and technical communicators seemed like heresy. What are you talking about? You want to take our creativity away. Okay, no one ever said the goal was to take the creativity away. So the pattern, the fear of breaking their pattern caused them to think that perhaps they wouldn't be as valuable. So the pushback is, why do we want to do that? And by the way, you pointed out the big thing earlier. It's not easy. It's a hard thing to unscrew up all this stuff. We have 
for years, created content, and and I guess I blame the personal computer um, because they were called personal. We had a folder on our desktop called My Documents, yeah. right? So we kind of led to believe that if we just hoard everything here, that we'll be important and we'll be the keepers of this information. And now we need to be the opposite. We need to create information that is not only available to everybody else in the organization in any format they needed in, but that also is available to machines that might talk to other machines. So, you know, it's not just us using a machine to type the content or save the content or make a video, but we rely on machines to process it, to categorize it, to, to organize it, to deliver it, to archive it, to destroy it, to protect it, to secure it. All those things have to happen. And if we're relying on a bunch of handcrafted solutions, they're not going to work together. And so I think that's one of our big challenges with marketing is there's so much handcrafting and creativity that goes into it that the pushback is that this is not going to work. And I, I think we'll see a change in this because of the ability of us to more accurately measure things. And as science, uh, information science and neuroscience in particular catches up, we're going to be able to dispel all these myths that marketers have produced. And, and it's not just marketers, it's content people in general. My fifth grade teacher, I used to blame her, Mrs. White, on all the different problems that exist in the content industry. And believe me, she was you know, teaching last in like 1975. And so it was a long time ago. But in the time, the number one TV show uh, uh, when I was in fifth grade with Mrs. White uh, as my English teacher was Star Trek. And during the Star Trek show, there was a woman who would sit at a control panel and touch a device in her ear and talk to people far away, which is now Bluetooth, right? <laughs> they would land on a planet and they would flip open this thing that looked like a Nokia cell phone and they would call other people, right? They would talk to them far away. And then the doctor would flip out this flat device and with his fingers interact with the screen and get medical information like the iPad. In 1975, all those things were science fiction. My English teacher was teaching us rules for a world in which those things did not exist. However, she plopped me out into a world in where those things are, are real. And so the rules that she taught me were for a, a world where the content didn't have any opportunity to interact with these fictional devices that are now real. So now what we need is not Art, language, my, my class, by the way, wasn't called English. It was called language arts. And so it was less about science and more about art. And what we really need today is more content science in order to be able to play with machines and then have them help us do things with our information. There's so much there. Sorry. Um, That's okay. I, I tend to do that. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, I like the idea of information-enabled organizations. Does, is every, does every organization have the ability to become information enabled? And, and in saying that, kind of take the technical angle at the same time. Is every organization, or, or I guess they have the ability to, do, to create intelligent or structured content to help them do that. But is there a lot of work involved in that for them? Yeah. Yeah. They have to, they have to, we have to undo everything that we've been taught. You yeah. Know, from, for example, when I started college, I only used a laptop uh, using the DOS operating system. I don't know if our, all of our uh, listeners are uh, old enough or uh, curious to go yeah, back. Yeah, I'm sad enough to say I know everything you're talking about. <laughs> so I, I used that interface for like three days in college. And then it turned out that Apple happened to be in, in, in about uh, a year later 
they happened to be introducing uh, this new computing system and they gave all the universities the first round of these computers. And so my experience became a desktop publisher. All of a sudden I went from, you know, three days of you code it this way and you, you print it out and then you give it to somebody else and they typeset it. And then they print it out and give it back to you and then you take a picture of it and then you give that to a, a person who makes a plate, who gives the plate to the printer and the printer prints it. We went from all of that to I sit down at the keyboard, I select the fonts, I decide how big they should be, I decide what pictures and colors and inks go in there, I decide the paper format, and then I print it with a device that's sitting right next to the computer. So all of a sudden, I took away, by using that computer, I took away the jobs of typesetter and the people who made the plates and the people who printed the stuff, and it all became my job. So what happened was anybody who grew up as a content person after that, they never knew the world before. So they've always thought that writing is about selecting fonts and making things pretty and inserting, you know, designing documents. It's not. A document designer designs document and a content creator creates the content. But we've been told that they're the same job. Now we're being asked to extract them and separate them. Take away the formatting and let the computer do it. Somebody will design it, right? There's a designer. But they design a template that the computer enforces and, and it applies automatically so that there's no handcrafting. And then the content people, hypothetically, are supposed to be able to focus on just creating the content. But because they're unable to divorce themselves from the fact that they're, they should be in charge of the way it looks and the way it feels and all these other things that are not their jobs, um, this has been a challenge. So the answer is any organization can become information enabled, but it's a big, it's a big amount of work. And it's a transformation. And what I mean by that is that transforming an established but inadequate approach to your content production um, is challenging if you're trying to do what's needed. And what's needed is you really need a lean, mean content producing factory. And the demands of a factory are different than the demands demands of the individual handcrafter, right? The person who handcrafts a pair of shoes does not have the same exact requirements as a machine shop that can manufacture and crank out thousands of that pair based on some kind of model. So we need to adopt some kind of um, content production processes and tools that provide us with the capabilities required to do those things at scale. So when organizations become information enabled, they're asking, they're, they're trying to find ways to leverage the information they have to accomplish the business goals that they've set out to do. And they're trying to do it in a more efficient and effective way, leveraging technology to augment the human labor that they have and to perhaps uh, offer something that they couldn't offer without the technology's help, right? Predictive analytics is a great example. We all had predictions before, Notre Dame, psychics, (laughs) (laughs) but we didn't always have the data, right? And then eventually we started to see that if we had a a bigger brain than, than the human brain, we could probably ascertain the value of something and predict what might happen quickly. And content really needs to to have those performance metrics and predictive capabilities assigned to it. And the only way to do it is to make the content understandable by machines. And so I think our job today is we have to explain to people why the word that you type itself is not enough, right? We need metadata behind the words to tell the computer the intent of that word. Why did we use that word? What are we trying to accomplish with this piece of content? And how can you help us track and measure whether we were successful at that? 
And if you just think of it as software, software requires um, to track things. It requires each thing have that you want to track to have a unique identifier. And they need to be able to be recognized by all sorts of systems, right? Which requires standardization, which is why we want to unify the way we create content so that companies can offer what's called content as a service. So if you could provide a bunch of content about the products that you sell, you might actually be able to create a secondary service information about your product that you could, for example, syndicate automatically to your clients and allow them to kind of import that content into their systems and apply it and do other things with it with with their computer technology and there's no there's no copying and pasting right there's no human beings that are involved in the process of moving the content over from one place to another because we've created standards we have now the ability to interoperate and i think that's what the information enablement is really about Pro producing an environment that will support the interoperable use of content where a piece of content can be valuable and be communicated to a human. A piece of content could be communicated to a machine that communicates to a human. A machine might communicate to another machine, <laughs> right? And so in order to have all that happen, we can't just have human values and human expectations in there. We need to have values that are important to computers and the expectations um, that computers um, need that are required for them to exchange information without our involvement. Everything you're talking about makes perfect sense. I try to look at it in terms of the content management technology that we have today to help make that happen. And some, I mean, it is evolving. Web content management is definitely not the brochureware HTML based web, you know, systems that they were. But I don't know that a lot of them can necessarily handle that kind of a structured content structure. I know they're headless. I know almost all of them are going headless to some level or not. Um, so that you can kind of separate the front end from the back end and manage the content separately. But are they, are they able to kind of manage that type of a structured content and, and where there's so many different content management systems used in a company, do you need to merge them all into one unified system or what's kind of required on the technology side? So there's different approaches. The first part I think I'll try to answer for you is that, there are a large variety of content management systems, and there are a lot of words to describe them, including the often misunderstood and misused <laughs> word headless. Um, and and uh, there's a lot of uh, marketing mumbo jumbo is what I'm going to blame it on. Um, companies that are trying to differentiate themselves from the competitors. So for example, they will create a synonym for a word that is commonly used by a competitor. Um, for example, there you could maybe see people saying smart content instead of intelligent content. They were trying to avoid copyright infringement and some other things. Um, huh. You know, but they were really not, they're not helping the situation by adding these new vocabulary words yeah. and creating this um, acronym soup and people just don't understand what um, there is. Content management systems in general have been designed to solve a very specific problem. And the problem has nothing to do with content. Almost always it is a, I'm a business person. I need to make some revenue. I'm going to get this system. Everyone's on the web. Look how many billions of people there are. There have to be so many people that are gullible enough to give me $400, right? It's a business plan and it's all based on probability. And so what happened was the web grew at such a ubiquitous clip that all of these systems said people need uh, content to produce, uh, to produce web pages. And if you 
thought about my earlier example where I told you I sat down at the computer and I was a desktop publisher and I actually, by using that machine, I, I no longer needed other people to do the jobs that they were doing, which was typography and typesetting and making the plates and printing because I could do all those things myself. So the CMS basically got rid of the webmaster role. Um, some people who are listening to the podcast may not know, you could Google webmaster and you should find some arcane job descriptions for yep. <laughs> uh, people who were hand coding web pages one at a time. Just think about that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, today we would never fathom doing that. And so I think CMSs are, they're, they're not web tools. First of all, the web is an output channel. <laughs> it's, right. not, it's not some kind of magical thing. And I think we have to figure out how to manage all the content the same way that computer, computer programmers manage their code and documentation teams manage all the information about their products, which is in a systematic way with repurposable uh, format separated from uh, repurposable content. So you can borrow information from one repository and move it to another, which brings you to your second question, can you weave together a bunch of systems and make them work together? Yes, you can. Unfortunately, that involves human beings to actually do the same thing again, which brings <laughs> us back to standardization. And so some companies want to in- intentionally be different and they box themselves out of interoperability. There is a second layer of people who are integrators whose job often is to make one system talk to another by inventing this thing in the middle called middleware. Then there's this move toward application programming interfaces or APIs, kind of syndicating the content out of your system and allowing another system to gobble it up. In order for the other system to understand it, guess what? It has to be structured content and it has to be, again, intelligent and formatted to a standard. Um, So everyone has to be able to understand it. So we're back to that problem again, right? It is Content management systems are often seen as tools that solve problems. Content management systems are not. They are systems that you can program to follow specific rules. You can enforce some uh, workflow and some access controls. It has uh, roles and responsibilities that humans used to have, like keeping track of changes, verifying that that is the valid and approved piece of content in compliance-oriented organizations. So you can see the content management system has really a whole lot of business roles that it plays, but we see the output on the web, and so it becomes web content. With that in mind, I had a great conversation yesterday with Christina Halverson, the uh, founder of uh, a Confab Conference for Content Strategists. That's an annual event held in Minneapolis and and in a couple of other places when she has some smaller versions of the conference that uh, specialize in niche audiences. She wrote a book that is widely viewed as one of the most important in the content strategy space. That was uh, Web Content Strategy. And she's Content Strategy for the Web, I think was the title of the book. And it focused on the web. And we just had a great conversation the other day about how short-sighted we were when we thought about the web as this end destination when really it's just a a cog in in the many uh, omni-channel universe that we live in (laughs) yeah like you add in like chatbots now and voice voice and you know social media kiosks in a retail store and, and the places and the channels that you can serve out content to just grows and grows every time you turn around it does. And the chatbot, the chatbot thing is going to change everything, by the way. All of our 
Um, everything we've talked about thus far until now in the program has really been based on the traditional notion of content being words on a page, whether the page was made of parchment or digital, um, you know, digital version of it on a screen. Right. It's the same concept. We're still about publishing information. We're not thinking about the fact that that interface that we're, that I had to interact in order to start this podcast with you, that won't be there. I won't be touching a keyboard. We're going to be talking to the machines. And the only way that machines can know the difference between Magnolia, the first name of a woman named Magnolia Johnson, who lives across the street from me, or Magnolia Street, which is a street in my neighborhood, or Magnolia, the tree that is right out front of my house, <laughs> or Magnolia, the shrub, which is in my next door neighbor's backyard. And we like to discuss the fact that they're both called Magnolia. The only way that they're going to know the difference is if we adopt structured, intelligent information and we do all the things that Ann Rockley and other content professionals have been arguing that we do, because those machines won't have the extra information that we can give it from a keyboard. They're only going to hear a command and then they're going to attempt to process what they can from our command. And if they don't have the necessary data at the back end, they will not have the ability to think and then conjure up an answer for us like we could as human beings. And so I think that's one of the biggest drivers for this kind of adoption is what happens when you you have to ask a machine and you no longer have to use your keyboard? Um, how will you be the number one answer? So you were asking earlier about marketers wanting to adopt it. Um, when you are a marketer and you keyword search for, let's say, a word that you, is commonly used to associate with your products, um, you hope that you show up on the first several um, hits on the search engine landing page that Google yes. serves up for you, right? But when you're, when you're doing audio, you don't have time to be perusing through, let me tell you about 15 different art things that you could read. You want one answer. <laughs> what is the best content management system? Let me show you a page with 15 articles about content management systems is not useful. And the reason that it retrieves those results is there's not a specific answer to the question, what is the best content management system? So you can imagine, the changes that are going to have to take place in marketing for them to compete with the companies that figure out how to do that. A few years ago, I took a, um, an afternoon, maybe just two hours with an expert in search engine optimization from Europe, who's a friend of mine. And I said, I want to be able to say who is Scott Abel to my talking devices. And I will not name them right now because I have them all in this room. And they will start talking during our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if I use their names aloud, but I, I was able to ask those devices or trick those devices basically. And I, I don't mean trick in a bad way. I mean, manipulate the information so that I was the answer to the question, right. who is yeah. Scott Abel? And then I would say to my, I would go in front of a conference and I would say, you want to be the answer to the question, you know, what is the best, whatever it is, or who, who is this company? Who is this person? And yet, um, you know, raise your hand if you think I can do that. And so I would test it. I would ask about much more famous people than me. And of course, the, the device would not know the answer. They would say, I can't find that for you. And then I would ask about me. And then I would ask the audience, why does the device know who I am, but they don't know who you are? And the reason is because I invested the time in augmenting and optimizing my content so that a voice search engine, and I understand how they work, which is also key, a voice search engine will find the data trail that I left that indicates that I'm the best answer for that question. 
not some other Scott Abel. And there are much more, uh, much more uh, influential and powerful and rich <laughs> uh, Scott Abels on the planet who should have been served up as the answer if you were using that other criteria. But that's just the point. We're not using cri- ranking criteria. It's not the most popular Scott Abel or the Scott Abel with the most money. It's the one that knows how to play the system. It's the, the company that optima- optimizes their information to be found by these devices will be the answer to the questions. So I think back to your marketing question, that's going to drive marketing. Marketing is eventually going to realize that all that pain, someone's going to go through it. If, if it's not going to be you, uh, Mr. or Mrs. CMO, it'll be the next CMO. Does, does, so, sorry, I'm trying to word this question the right way because <laughs> um, that, that puts the onus on marketing to kind of really think about how they want to be known. Is is it smarter or better to shift that kind of work into a content operations center, which um, I've talked to Kathy McKnight a lot about setting up content operations, which more centralizes kind of how you, how you think of and use content. Is it better to kind of shift it there and just feed that information and help marketers as, as well as other parts of the organization? For me personally, and keep in mind that I'm producing an inform- uh, a conference called Information Development World, that the theme of the conference is about building information-enabled organizations. Or if you were going to retitle it, you could also title it as a secondary title, why your, comp- your company should uh, adopt content operations. Okay. <laughs> because it really needs to be systematic, right? We yeah. need to be able to drop people in when someone leaves or dies or retires or whatever it is. Uh, and is no longer a cog in the wheel. We need to be able to put another cog in that place. And we need to be able to just pull it out like a Lego and put another one in. And we can do that with a lot of things that work for us, right? There are a lot of systems. Uh, our computers and apps are a great example, right? Now we can just click on a thing and the app will load and it's part of the operating system and you don't have to do a bunch of other things. And that's because they're made to be interoperable, right? It's, it's the operational part of content operations is making those things work together in a efficient, effective, seamless way that's replicatable so that if you grow your company by acquisition or you um, develop a new division of your company or you buy another company or whatever, you need to be able to merge all those together. And so content operations, if you had two companies that had an operational model for content, they would be more likely to be easier um, to combine and choreograph the transfer of that information from the entity that was purchased, for example, into the mothership company that bought it. Mm-hmm. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of business value here that's not really the responsibility of the marketing team. For, for my value, I don't care what the marketing team thinks. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't think that the business driver for an entire organization should be what the marketing department is. Now, if the marketing department is leading the way in generating the revenue, they should definitely have a big, uh, strong voice in it. But we have to make sure that the decisions that are made by marketing don't somehow negatively impact the people prior to the marketing department's involvement and after the marketing department's involvement in the creation of content. So we're, we're after a system that works for everyone, that optimizes every department so that everyone is used to the best of their capability and that the machines that are there empower them to do better work faster than the competition. I I. I... I'd love to end right there because I think that's just the perfect way to end it. Um, this is great information and you've actually made me kind of step back and rethink how I think about um, content management to some degree, even though I do understand that the strategy and of 
how you use and build and create content is so much more than just the systems that there's they reside inside but um yeah i think a lot of people don't separate the two well enough to kind of do it the right way yeah and, and i would like to point out that i'm not arguing that i have the right way i'm arguing that if we leave it to everyone to have their own way there's no easy way to weave that together right right because everyone is that we're just different enough with our little tiny degree of difference of genetic makeup that we can totally conjure up things that do not work together much easier than we can conjure up something that everyone can use is is there a right person to lead that I would say there's not a clearly identified role that jumps out at people yet. It's probably some kind of chief, I would say chief information officer should be deeply involved in that and chief marketing and chief technology officer altogether. Yeah. But customer success has to play a role, right? Because we're doing it for the customers. And we also have to recognize that some companies burn through a lot of money on internal communications and we don't talk about that at all. We talk about the customer facing stuff, but without, yeah. without the stuff that came before that, you would never have any customer facing content. So we also have to figure out how do we do that internally and allow people to still have some autonomy and creativity so they feel good, right, as human beings participating in the process, but that they also understand that we're asking them to harness their creativity to make other people empowered. We're not just asking you to show your creativity so you can demonstrate how good you are at your job. I need you to make other people better. That's, that's such a good thing to do, but I think a lot of people struggle with that just because they're worried about their job and they don't want anyone else. Some people don't aren't like that, but it's interesting. Yeah, I think everything is changing so fast that it just makes sense for us to be fearful of some of these things. You know, whenever I talk about artificial intelligence at a conference, I'll inevitably get somebody that raises their hand to ask about the coming, you know, um, emancipation of the robots and how yeah. they're, they're <laughs> going to kill us, et cetera. And I say, you know, all these things are possible. You can design um, something that could be used for a good thing. And somebody with a little creativity could say, you know, if I reverse engineer that, I could do something the opposite with that. So we know that as human beings, we have to be smart enough to design systems that empower people and be um, cognizant of the dangers and try to build in protections that help us and that will we make mistakes along the way guaranteed look look at our track record yeah. <laughs> as humans we have made uh, you know lots of mistakes but we're also still here right so I think yeah. we can overcome them and if we work together we'll figure out a way to make all of this work in a way that's better for the majority of people great thanks Scott this has been really enlightening I really um I'm, I'm really glad we had a chance to talk. I am too. Thanks for making the time for me. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.